Bilingual in America. Tunei el loga fi America. Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Ser bilingue en America. I'm Suzanne Lasser. I'm Yarina Sancion, and this is Bilingual in America. Hi, I'm Yarina Sancion. The landscape of schools today is increasingly multilingual. To achieve equity in culturally and linguistically diverse schools, we need not just new strategies, but new roles for both teachers and students. We need to recognize what meaningful engagement with rigorous content learning actually involves. And we need to understand that effective language interactions are at the heart of engagement and learning. How then can we create opportunities for students to use all the tools in their toolbox, including home languages, to engage meaningfully with content and with each other? Our guests today are leaders with wide visions for creating powerful, equitable platforms. We close our segment with a very special treat. Internationally acclaimed musician Jimmy Bosch offers a wonderful musical rendering of our program hashtag. You won't want to miss it. Yolanda Rodriguez migrated to the United States as a young adult. She found herself nurturing young students and contributing in ways that others contributed to her. As a dual language instructional coach and as the executive director and co-founder of the Bronx Arts Factory, she speaks about identity, culture, and the complete lens of the dual language program. Let's listen in as she speaks with me, Yarina Sencion. Thank you so much for agreeing to be with us here in Bilingual in America. We are so honored to have this conversation with you today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, uh, Darina. It's my pleasure. Of course. Well, you know, Yolanda, I love to always give people a little bit of context. So if you could just tell us a little bit of your bilingual story. Yes. So I moved to New York, specifically the Bronx, New York in 1997. I was 23. I moved here after college. My story is that I, I didn't speak English and I wanted to pursue a medical career and my father said it would be nice if you spend a little bit of time in the United States to learn English and I did. I moved here. Once here I started taking classes at Hunter College and just trying to get myself more familiarized with English and the grammar and vocabulary and everything that comes with it as an adult. And I I struggled a little bit with identity and and trying to figure out this new persona now with a different voice. I, I felt like my voice in English sounded very different than my voice in Spanish. So um, I started writing, journaling often during this time in my life because I, I felt emotionally drained as I was learning the new language. I've been here in the country for many years now. I've been here in New York for 24 years about. And so I, I find myself feeling more proficient now, but I always consider myself an English language learner because we're always learning something new. So yeah, that's a little bit of my story. You know, that's interesting because 
I always feel that way as well, you know, that I'm always acquiring language in English and in Spanish now that I've lived dual realities, right? And so, mm -hmm. yes, I love that perspective. So now, fast forward to present day, you're the dual language instructional coach for a big school district. So in your lens, what would you say is the state of dual language instruction today? Yes. So I think that dual language programs are becoming more popular um, around suburban areas. You know, they say to work in a district that is suburban and in nature. And that in a way is very positive because I feel that English language learners across the region will have the opportunity to pursue a bilingual education. But I always feel very cautious when things like this happened. I feel a little bit like dual language programs may have become a little bit of a trend. And when dual language programs are initiated in any school district, it's very important that we think about the reasons why we're carrying the, the program, which is to continue um, bilingual education for a group of children. So I, I caution uh, people out there that are um, kind of jumping into the dual language uh, uh, bandwagon to make sure that they examine the guiding principles of dual language, the purpose of it, that the dual language programs are really um, encouraging equity and, and, and cultural diversity and celebration and that we're teaching the children in these dual language programs about each other's cultures. I think that's one of the things that's lacking right now in, in many dual language programs. Yes, there's rigorous curriculum in both languages, but there's so much more than that. So I think that the state right now is that we do need to re-examine a little bit um, our practices around dual language program creations, um, specifically in suburban, suburban neighborhoods. Right. So, you know, I see what you're saying in terms of that there is rigor on both sides of the of the coin of the dual language platform. And interestingly enough, I haven't heard an emphasis on teaching about culture, which is so important in understanding how things come to be for people, right? And so, right, because all those things influence your decision making, it influences uh, your, your your family status, it influences the job you might choose, right? So as a people, I can see the importance of that piece. So thank you for bringing awareness to that. With the latest talk of the science of reading, how do you think that relates to students who are learning more than one language? Yes, yeah, so when I started listening to the most current conversations on the science of reading, right? Because the science of reading conversations have been happening for decades. Um, the most current conversations um, remind me that in the bilingual world, in the world of language acquisition, we have been having these conversations as well. And I feel that the science of reading is bringing light to some practices that ENL teachers and bilingual teachers and dual language teachers have been doing for many years, teaching explicit vocabulary, focusing on content areas to increase comprehension, being explicit in teaching, right? Uh, matching phonics very explicitly to content areas. 
so many areas of this conversation on the science of reading are areas that I feel in the bilingual education and English language learning education conversations have been happening. So to me, it just reiterates what we have known about learning that it needs to be explicit. And specifically when we're talking about children that are learning a second language, it needs to be explicit. You need to go to the to the main big question of the teaching, what is essential, and and understand that it's not just about phonics, right? One of the big things in the science of reading is the Scarborough reading rope. There's many areas of that rope, which includes comprehension, vocabulary, right? There's it has to all come together. So I do think that it applies. And I, I think that it's just practices that in the bilingual world and English language learner word, world, we, we have been talking about for many years now. Right. And I would imagine that, you know, even for the youngster who is learning Spanish in the dual language program, they would, you know, appreciate and flourish under the same guidelines, that instruction be very clear, very explicit, and very balanced. And I really appreciate what you said that, because I think sometimes we hook on to a buzzword, right? Like, oh, it's phonics, it's teaching phonics. If you've been teaching phonics, you've been doing it. And it's a, a more comprehensive process and picture, right? Exactly. Yeah, I caution people to think that the conversation of science or reading is only about phonics. That's, that's not the conversation. So absolutely, I agree with you. Yeah, no, thank you for highlighting that. It's so important. So Yolanda, you know, while you said that you arrived to, at this, to this country when you were 23, I know that you right away became very busy as an educator and that you've taken on other activist work, that you've participated on panels, like for example, the panel of the Department of Education with the equity work. And I know that you've also have done some work with Naisabes. So could you just share a little bit about that activist work? Um, yeah, so early on when I arrived, I, I was blessed to be surrounded by amazing women leaders in the education world. And um, some of those leaders got me involved with the NYSAB organization, which uh, for some of you that don't know is the New York State Association for Bilingual Education. Um, and with them, I, I was very actively working with them for more than a decade. I started as a volunteer and then joined their board and, and did their conferences many years doing logistics and different things. They're a wonderful organization. They're an advocacy organization. And through them, I got that passion for community work and advocacy. Um, so I continue to be involved with them. I did present um, um, in the latest conference, which was virtual about biliteracy practices in the classroom um, and a case study that I did with two colleagues in my school district. But I, I think that more than that, they inspired me to do my own thing. So in 2014, me and another three community members in the Bronx, we founded an organization, which is the BXR's Factory. In this organization, we are, our mission is to, to just bring community together uh, through the arts and giving artists opportunities to share their work, their advocacy work through, through creativity. We believe in this legacy that we have as immigrant and as migrant communities um, because in the Bronx, we have primarily, you know, immigrant families. 
that sometimes when we move to a different country, we, we leave behind some of these things, our creativity, because we come here to work so hard. Um, so we want to bring that back to the family legacy, and specifically in the Bronx. With the equity, I have been participating in the district for about two years in my district in, the, in an equity committee. I have learned a great deal. But equity has been my life's work, bilingualism, education, um, bilingualism and social justice um, have been in, in my life's work. So being invited to this committee was an honor to have this national platform to be able to share a little bit of, of that passion. And yeah, so it was a great opportunity. And I, I wish that we could have more of those opportunities as school teachers to speak um, at this level, at the national level. I, you know, I'm just so in awe of what you just shared in terms of your activism and, uh, and so appreciate that someone like you brings that lens. You know, you, you just said something important, like how when we leave so much behind and we leave our arts behind, right? And our art could be our music, our physical art, it could be language, it could be our cooking, it could be, you know, all these expressions of art. Yes. And so we don't need to leave that behind. And as I hear you talking, I perhaps I hear a book in the making. <laughs> you know, it's in my it's in my bucket list to write a book. I have always wanted to write a book. I also um, I would love to write children's books. That's it's all in my head, Jarina. Uh, eventually, hopefully, I will be able to make that dream happen. Well, you know, I know that you are the make it happen go getter that you are, and. <laughs> You know, it, you know, all in a, in a season, right? The season for that will also come, I'm sure. Exactly. So, you know, in Bilingual in America, our hashtag is speak your beauty. And you've already spoken so much beauty, but perhaps you can share with our listeners, how else do you speak your beauty? I speak my beauty by being authentic to who I am and the experiences that have shaped me. Hmm. I. I speak my beauty by always honoring the women that have helped me get to where I am, which started from my family, my mom, my grandmothers, my aunts, and it just extended to beautiful friends and beautiful colleagues and coworkers. So that's how I speak my beauty, by making sure that I'm honoring others and being authentic and always being authentic. Oh, that answer just touches my heart so deeply. It's such a beautiful way to speak beauty. and. There is no greater um, honoring than honoring those who help you and then honoring those in front of us by being authentic, right? It's all about honoring. So just beautiful. I'd like to end today's interview with, um, if you could capture the essence of being bilingual in a word or in a phrase, what would that be? Identity. Mm, identity. So you spoke a little bit about that in the beginning, how you felt that that you lost a little bit of your identity until you regained it. And it's probably also connected to the advocacy work that you do with art, uh, right? Because that's part of identity. Yeah. yeah, I think that for many language learners, language is connected to their identity. So as educators of children that are learning new languages, we need to understand that aspect of them. You get connected to the sounds of your voice in one language, to the sounds of the people around you in one language, and that builds your identity since you're born. When you learn a new language, it's a revision of that identity. 
So you have to make sure as an educator that you're supporting that. It's very important to me. I always feel that language is identity. Beautiful. Bueno, Yolanda, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Um, you certainly bring uh, a beautiful lens to the dual language and bilingual conversation. And I look forward to the future and your future activist work and your future book mm -hmm. and all the other things that I'm sure that you will take on as you are a visionary. So thank you so much, Yolanda Rodriguez, for being with us today. Thank you, Janina. My pleasure. Looking forward to many, many more beautiful things together. Dr. Andrea Hoynesfeld, Associate Dean of the Doctoral Program of Education at Malloy College, Educational Consultant, and one of the authors of the book, From Equity Insights to Action, speaks to Suzanne Lasser about shifting mindsets, creating fresh belief systems, and amplifying student voices as she traverses the social justice equity world in education. Let's listen in as she speaks with my co-host, Suzanne Lasser. Andrea is the Associate Dean and Director of the Doctoral Program in Education at Molloy College in Rockville Center, New York. And before doing all that, Andrea was an English as a foreign language teacher and English as a second language teacher. She's been a Fulbright scholar. She definitely is in tune with everything that is concerning our bilingual and multilingual communities. So Andrea, welcome to Bilingual in America. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm really honored that you have invited me on your podcast and that I'm able to share my passion with you and your listener regarding creating a supportive, equitable learning environment for multilingual learners. Yes, listen, I'm excited to dive in with you. You've done a lot of work in terms of diversity, social justice, equity, language instruction. And recently you have made a shift towards this idea of an advocacy framework approach. So tell us about how that came to be for you. Well, sadly, the pandemic was the catalyst for this kind of thinking. Prior to the pandemic, as you mentioned, I've done a lot of publications, a lot of research, presentations connected to teacher collaboration and co-teaching, integrating content and language for English learners, multilingual learners. But equity was not always at the forefront of my research and publications. What happened during the pandemic, as many others observed, the pandemic pulled back the curtain relating to the inequities the disparities, the disproportionate impact of lack of resources caused our multilingual learners and other marginalized communities. So when I was thinking about responding to the urgency of what the pandemic brought to light, I collaborated with a team of colleagues and frequent co-authors and we put our heads together. We engaged in some deep thinking and research related to what is happening related to English learners and multilingual learners. And we found that what's absolutely critical is to examine our thinking, our mindsets, 
as well as our actions related to this population. So we, we wrote a new book called From Equity Insights into Action. And the book does exactly that, accomplishes that, which is inviting our readers to think deeply about their belief systems, about their philosophies of education, what they think about this population, and then what their actions are related to supporting this population in every possible way. And the equity framework that we came up with consists of four critical elements. The first one is to amplify our multilingual learners' talents, spirits, and personal powers. The second one is to recalibrate the curriculum to ensure that we are accelerating learning for multilingual learners rather than designating some kind of remedial program for them or trying to always catch up and figure out what is missing, what is absent, what deficiencies we might be able to see. So shifting from a deficiency mindset to an asset-based, strength-based mindset is absolutely critical. And that's what we're promoting in this framework. The next, the third element is teaching and assessing our students to build their autonomy, agency, and resilience. Mm -hmm. And finally, harnessing connections and relationships within the classroom, within the school, as well as within the larger educational communities that our students live in. So this is a, a what I would say both a simple and complex framework. I've learned from Michael Fullen the fabulous word that he coined. The word is simplicity. When we want to combine something that's both so simple and apparent, such as we need to pay attention to our students' needs through an equity lens, but at the same time, rather complex. So we have to pay close attention to what those critical elements of building an equity framework for multilingual learners will be all about. So I think I just summarized my book for you, but I'm so excited to just talk about any aspect that interests you. Yes, so thank you for that. And definitely simplicity captures it well because it's a multifaceted approach, right? These four elements. And what more, Andrea, do you think we should be doing in terms of pre-service teachers, in-service teachers, school boards, elected officials? So let's start with the students. Let's get to know them. Let's move away from simply defining them by a label. This is an entering level student or an intermediate level student, depending on which part of the country or the world you are living in as you're listening to this podcast. We, as educators, seem to be using a lot of labels, a lot of test scores, a lot of different kinds of data. Sometimes we even are drowning in data. So much information is available about our students. But what we have to start with is getting to know them through this equity and asset-based lens. Who are they? What kind of cultural and linguistic assets and strengths and prior experiences they're bringing to the table, recognizing that their languages and often more than one, not just the home language, but many of our English learners are multilingual learners, developing this multilingual consciousness and celebration of their diverse experiences. So when we're looking at our English learners as years ago, something very interesting happened. I'm gonna just digress for a moment. Years ago, I 
found in a small Florida school district's publication, their guidelines about limited English proficient students, when that was the acronym we used, LEP, changed to language enriched pupils. That changed my mind forever. And this was in the late 1990s. So I've been embracing this philosophy of what is the lens that we're going to be taking to look at these students for a long time when the federal designation was LEP and we could not really use anything else to describe this population but limited English proficient. But this one Florida school district went around the LEP acronym and changed what LEP stands for. It changed my mind and my heart forever that exactly that's what we have to apply that mindset and that definition of LEP is what we have to truly embrace, which is language enriched pupils. So what can we do, you ask, in, with all of these different constituencies? Start here, changing practices, changing hearts, changing minds can start by simply better understanding who these students are through an asset-based lens. Absolutely, that's music to my ears, this idea of these language enriched pupils because it's you know, just rebranding what LEP means. Automatically, it sounds so different as you look at someone thinking, wow, they're language enriched as opposed to limited, right? Exactly. And Do you put the deficiency first? If we're doing limited English proficient or even with English language learners, we're truly putting the deficiency first. When we call these students multilingual learners, then we're putting the, the asset first. We're recognizing that, yes, English is one of those languages that they are working on, but we're not minimizing the importance of the rich cultural and linguistic heritages that they're bringing to our classrooms. And those languages, those multiple languages or dialects are also tools for students to learn, tools for understanding the world around them. Those are also very, very important for home school connections. So multilingualism, as the norm is what we are advocating for in this book. And I think when you ask what should pre-service, in-service teacher education programs, policymakers, and all other constituencies consider is to shift to this multilingual consciousness, thinking about our English learners through that lens. Yes, we need to continue to move in that direction. You know, we began the journey with the bilingual seal of literacy in this country a handful of years ago. And so we've seen there are more and more states that are taking this on. And we want our students to be bilingual at a minimum and multilingual at a maximum. How beautiful that is. And when we see that already happening, there was a recent study that uh, revealed information, at least in New York State, about how many students have gotten the bilingual seal of literacy who were never L's, right, English language learners, and those who are former or current English language learners. And I think it's important that we recognize that this bilingual seal of literacy is not limited to students who come here as new learners of the English language. And this idea of multilingual consciousness that has been absent as part of the, I think, American conversation for too long the rest of the world is not only bilingual, but multilingual. Multilingualism is the norm. Any part of the world you go to, any continent, if you could just sweep through 
um, mentally in Europe, I grew up in Hungary and I studied six languages. And that was just perfectly normal that you develop fluency in more than one place. And you also dabble in some other languages and you develop some kind of communicative competence, even if you don't have full literacy in all of those places. But this is just very, very exciting to think about languages as both a very important part of our identities, as well as extremely useful and critical tools for communication in a multilingual global economy and global world. Yes, I think about um, us in terms of humanity and this idea of communicative competence and how important it is. But the ability to communicate in more than one way is so important in our global society. Thinking about that in terms of amplifying the voices of our multilinguals, how do you think your work is impacting students and more importantly, educators who are responsible for advocating and really helping our students develop this idea of autonomy, as you mentioned. So our students already have a voice. When I hear others saying that, let's give our students a voice, well, it recreates that power relationship that we as educators or we as administrators would have the power to give or take away voices. So that's why I love the way you also put it, and we use that term in the book as well, is to amplify voices recognizing that our students have their multilingual voices, their multilingual identities, but bringing those experiences, their linguistic, cultural, and historic experiences to the forefront. How do we do that? Well, we make sure that those voices, those experiences are reflected in the curriculum, that our students see their lives, their lived experiences, their cultural backgrounds, not just recognized during a multicultural evening, uh, where food and festivities are uh, at the forefront, but that they are visible in the curriculum, that they're important, acknowledged and celebrated in the curriculum, that everybody else is learning about those cultural, historic and linguistic experiences. Another way that we amplify student voices is recognizing that when we assign a particular task to our students, they can tap into their full linguistic repertoires, that we're not going to embrace an English-only approach to responding to a particular task, um, working on a project, submitting a homework assignment, creating maybe a podcast or um, another kind of assignment for a particular class, but inviting our students to utilize their multiple linguistic skills and talents and integrate those experiences into what they are working on. So that way their home languages are not something that we need to overcome. The home language is not perceived as a barrier to learning, but the home language, the home culture, or in many cases, as I mentioned, the multiple linguistic repertoires that our students have become part of the curriculum, part of the norm of us interacting with our students. Ophelia Garcia talks about translanguaging. So what I'm describing here is not new. It has been around for quite some time, recognizing that the bilingual or multilingual brain uh, utilizes more than one linguistic structures. And when we do that as bilingual or multilingual learners, we are able to 
um, better activate our understandings, make more sense of the world around us as we're using different linguistic tools. So how can we do that? How can, it's so a very simple strategy is inviting a student to maybe um, create an outline in their home language, uh, create a mind map in their home language, even if the teacher does not speak that particular language, but inviting thinking and acknowledging that thinking is thinking, literacy is literacy, even if it's not happening in English and inviting students to draft, to prepare something, um, that will support then transferring their understanding into English. So inviting bilingualism or multilingualism into our classes, into the various um, linguistic and literacy tasks that we are providing our students with or inviting our students to participate in and using multiple languages to do that. I think that's a, a beautiful idea going to challenge our educators who are out there, our community activists, and the individual to really just think about, as you said, allowing and encouraging using that home language, that culture, and letting that be the way that information is recorded. I think that your book, along with your co-authors, is landing right on time as we think about a post-COVID instructional environment, uh, this idea of these equity insights into action. Action research is a big part of what we do. Theory is great, but if we do not take the next step beyond that and put it into practice, nothing will get changed. We want to continue allowing multilinguals, bilinguals, biculturalism rise and be part of the regular conversation that we are seeing. So, Andrea, how would you translate speak your beauty in Hungarian? That is such a beautiful phrase. So I have to think of it since there is no similar colloquial expression in Hungarian. Safe and Bessie. I think that would be closest. I have to recognize my co-authors for this book, my fellow equity champions, Maria Dove, Audrey Cohen, Harry McDermott Goldman, and Clariba Gonzalez, who is a New York um, ENL teacher who provided absolutely beautiful sketch notes for this book. So thank you to all of them. And thank you to you, Suzanne, for inviting me on this podcast. It's been a pleasure to reconnect with you. I know that we will get together again and kudos to you, your co-authors, and thank you for making sure that you help our bilingual, multilingual community to speak their beauty. Engaging multilingual learners means leveraging their energy and curiosity, their diverse experiences, and their creativity as communicators. Multilingual learners can no longer be the few students in the back of the room whose ideas we'll tap into later when they're able to share them with us in English. We will need students with cultural, linguistic, and intellectual flexibility to be able to cross borders, bridge communities, and help solve global crises that we face each day. We thank our guests today for leading with social justice vision, clearly on the goal, speaking their beauty 
in equitable and transformational ways. Bilingual in America, speak your beauty. Bilingual in America, speak your beauty. Bilingual in America, speak your beauty. Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm Bilingual in America in our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback. Follow us, like us, share us. Bye-bye.